0: honored always, O oh beloved descendants of Hawaii Kulaidi, let us wear the Aali'i Blossom as we stand united, steadfast and maka'ala. Paddle on together in our pursuits of civil justice, until our dignity is restored. Wow.
1: Day, when is my video showing on? This? It is. Yeah. It's,
2: it's pretty awesome. It is. Yeah, so I guess we'll, really we'll just, just...
1: Let's push that back. <laughs>
2: <laughs> awesome. How's how's the conference going?
1: Oh, the conference is is really cool. I just finished my presentation yeah. in the last panel. Yeah. Um, <coughs> Got people from all over the world here, from Sri Lanka, India, Palestine, Jordan, New Caled, uh, West Papua, Solomon Islands, Fiji, Okinawa, South Korea. Very cool.
2: Sweet. How how was the uh, reception to um, your presentation?
1: Oh, it was very good. I got very good feedback. People. I mean, I guess it's it's not that hard when people usually don't know anything about Islam. Right. So if you're the first one to talk to them about Guam. But um, so the the big takeaway though is, of course, you've got all of these places dealing with militarization that are, uh, you know, coming at it in a very visceral way. So people spoke who are from like Sri Lanka, where there was ethnic cleansing about 10 years ago and heavy militarization in certain ethnic minority areas. You've got people talking about Palestinians. You've got all this stuff around the world. And so why should Guam matter in that equation, right? Because Guam is in a place where people are dying left and right. And for all the things that have happened in the past, Chamorros aren't being pushed off their land right now the way they were after World War II. So the question always is, why? Why does it matter? Why does this small place that most of the world has never heard of, or, or it confuses with Guatemala, why does this place matter? Yeah. And so uh, my presentation, my presentation focused on that, and, and I basically said, uh, if you're if you're looking to sort of weaken the the powers of military militarism and empire in the world, you can't go to places. You can't simply focus on places where violence erupts and manifests in very like literal, tangible ways, because in some ways that's the end of a process. Mm. You have to look at the other steps mm. in the equation which you <coughs> there. So I said basically <laughs> stuff which blows up in the Middle East, for example, it moves across it moves across the Pacific, it usually stops in places like Guam. You know, troops that head on to that part of the country usually stop in Guam. So you have to think about these other points, these conduits, these nodes, uh, links, cogs in the machine, and and you have to focus on those because if you only focus on where violence manifests, then you may end up leaving sort of the the larger machinery untouched, uncriticized.
2: Gotcha. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you're out there representing Hapoday Pete, Chelo Pete from SaiPen. And so I guess um, today's, obviously, um, I am not Hannah and this is not Albert. (laughs) But um, uh, if you're not aware, we we do have a a Patreon um, program. So... And it, what? Sorry, it's really distracting because I'm getting feedback from the Facebook live stream, but I'll try and get through this uh, very briefly. Yeah. So um, we have a Patreon program with three tiers. What was that, Miguel? Alpha legmo?
1: know met brabu my
2: <laughs> yeah, so uh, basically today is a Q&A session or I should say F&O, Faisons and Opie. Um, we've allowed our, our, our patrons to ask questions ahead of time um, and we're here to answer those today and uh, the first question from, uh, from Carolyn um, is, is perfect and we, we thought it would be a great idea to bring Maget uh, on board um, even though he, he's miles away in South Korea. And so, um, we'll, we'll just have Larry read the question out again.
3: Okay. So, the uh, question from Carolyn is, uh, I've been curious to learn more about our Chamorro women that demonstrated resistance against colonialism during the Spanish colonial period. In much of our history, we hear about our chiefs, Matapang, Haral. Uh, were there any Chamorro women during that time that showed the same type of resistance?
1: That's a very good question. Um, And so we always have to remember that what we know about that period is limited in many ways by what the Spanish wrote down. And so our knowledge of that time will always be restricted by their prejudices, right? And so the Spanish, you know, for one of the great ways you can see that is that the Spanish do acknowledge sort of that more women had power in society they didn't like it. And so you you see that dislike. You see that prejudice manifest in the fact that regardless of if anyone sent a memo around every priest or something telling <laughs> them discriminate against women, like, no, nothing like that happened. But they uniformly just did not acknowledge Chamorro women. So we know the names of people like uh, Hurao Aquilin, Chalef and others because the Spanish wrote about them male male figures that they liked male figures that they didn't like but for female figures that they liked or they didn't like they just simply didn't give them names even if they would describe them they wouldn't ever mention their names and I mean that even if they were speaking positively about them because the priests write about Chamorro women who brought their children to be uh, baptized who said that they had seen the Virgin Mary and then would come and ask to be converted. And they would never tell their names either. Even when there was a Magahaga from a village in the south who the Spanish said was so ferocious in her love for the new church that she had her warriors hunt down rebel Chamorros and turn them over to the Spanish. They, the Spanish didn't give her a name either. And so um, we do know that Chamorro women resisted and there is enough evidence to show that Chamorro women resisted more than men did. Because um, men, uh, at least from what we see, men were more willing to engage in the new religion in some ways because it could mean greater social power for them. One of the most telling passages we find is when a, a Chamorro husband comes to a priest, asking the priest, so he, if he can convert, because his his friend who has a who's Christian, his wife does everything he says and obeys him without question. And so the Chamorro man comes and says, make my, "If I convert, will you make my wife like like my friend's wife? Will you make it so that my wife uh, is just like my party's wife over there and never talks back, never questions me?" And so we see that because of the Spanish and they're sort of so and because um compared to the Spanish Chamorro men had less sort of social power there was a desire amongst men to to sort of to convert so that they could gain power over the women in their family or in their lives um, so but um so some of the ways that we see that Chamorro women definitely resisted um, is is in terms of Chamorro women who were, did not want their children to um, grow up in slavery. There was, there's mention of them uh, aborting their fetuses and so on. And um, and also committing suicide, because they sort of they realized that they would have less power, less standing. They would basically lose their place in society if they accepted the new regime. And so we do have some mentions of women taking those sorts of drastic steps
2: very interesting. So, I don't know. I guess, you know, if we're, if we're going to contextualize within like current politics, you know, obviously we, we've just sent um, a delegation to the UN uh, composed of women, of Femilowin. Um How would you describe the space uh, for uh, resistance in today's uh, indigenous uh, decolonial? Uh, activism
1: Say that again describe the base of resistance in colonial when
2: for a decolonial uh, resistance uh, women's spaces for for resistance in today's politics yeah
1: today yeah <laughs> I dispense with it. You keep cutting out on my end, too. Is that, is that my fault that you're cutting out? Or is it the no internet idea. there?
2: <laughs> it could be a mix of both. I might be hearing feedback from your phone. Um, I'm not exactly sure.
1: And so if I, I think that I understood your, what is the basis of resistance in a decolonial framework and then sort of the role of women in that framework?
2: <laughs> yeah um sort of we're we're getting <laughs> so I' mean like uh obviously, let me see how how would you say where, where is the continuity between um uh, Romans resistance women's resistance in the past and uh, you know and today
1: what is the connection between yeah, ancient it... resistance of women and today? oh yeah oh yeah you can okay you can absolutely see parts of that Um, so after sort of the conversion you know uh the priests do acknowledge that that women were more resistant um were more resistant than men to converting they were more stubborn sort of in not wanting to give up the old ways um women hold out longer than men do in terms of accepting the church So it's probably only maybe about 80 years, two or three generations after the Chamorro Spanish wars are over that we see Chamorro women kind of accept the church. And interestingly enough, it only comes about after the church changes their strategy for engaging with Chamorro women. And that is that uh, because uh, that early on the church had really strongly emphasized, of course, the male figures in the church, the male figures in the pantheon. But in the 1700s they start to promote sort of uh the maternal figures in the church mary figures and that's something which then when they allow more women to create their own sort of like societies of mary where they can kind of uh organize themselves and find their own ways of worshiping mary that's when more women start to join the church willingly and the assumption is that they see or that they sort of felt the, that this was a place which recognized the power of the Magahaga, that like they could find spaces to sort of keep their sort of uh, strong femininity, their strong sort of their claim to sort of social life. They could keep it alive in these spaces in the church, even if in anywhere else in society they were being shut down. And so, um, in addition to that, of course, Laura Laura Souder writes that. Um, the language and the sense of identity is something that the women pass on, that even when Chamorro women intermarry with other races, their children still spoke Chamorro and still considered themselves to be Chamorro. You know, some of that is debatable, but it is true in a general sense, though, that women, that sort of the women and their stronger connection to the land and to the culture, even after a century has passed, like that, they still sort of there was this insistence of identity that they were the caretakers of, that they helped maintain. And then, um, so this is one reason I think why um, tomorrow activist movements can be very successful, is because they do tend to be female female focused. Um, one of the differences, um, I mean. If we look at sort of for example like independent Guahan now and and, and Pratehi La Texen and other groups that are out there now, uh, women sort of dominate the groups. And this is in huge contrast to the way many social movements around the world organize themselves. I mean, um, we Manny when we were at the UN last year, we saw the other de- we saw the other delegation that came from Maui Nui, from French Polynesia. I think it was like 10 guys and one girl. And then you saw our delegation, which was, our delegation was, which was like, it was, I don't know, like 13 women and three men. And that's a huge contrast, (laughs) huge, huge contrast. And, And we really don't think enough about what that means because around the world, you know, and, and in our movements, for example, um, women are not simply just like core in a certain area, but they tend to lead, they tend to be in charge. And so we can definitely see that manifested. And it is very cool. Like in my presentation here today, like I showed a picture of, of, of people of tomorrow's that went to the UN and everyone was freaking out. They're like, wow, so many young people, so many women. You know, and it's and and it's it's a stark contrast because every place will say that they have strong women, but there is something about Guam's culture, despite centuries of patriarchy, which still basically <clears throat> makes it makes it more possible for women to assume leadership roles, for women to sort of take over the organizing of things, and so we can thank the Lengahaga spirit for that.
2: Absolutely. Do you think um, in in Guohan, do you think that there are systems that threaten um, women's spaces?
1: The last part say the last part again.
2: Uh, women's spaces or women women's role in society?
1: So I think that there I think that... Go ahead say that again. <laughs>
2: Oh I, I just I basically just said um uh spaces or systems that threaten women's sovereignty in Guahan. Can you think of any?
1: I can't hear you at all. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, I'll try this one more time. So can you think of any systems that um in guam that threaten women's sovereignty.
1: Did you say are there systems in Guam that enable female sovereignty?
2: That threaten.
1: Oh, that threaten that that threaten female sovereignty.
2: Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is why whenever um people say that guam is like an island of maga or something like that i'm you know i'm always very cautious with that sort of thing because guam is a patriarchy we should make no mistake because the issue, the difference between patrilineal and matrilineal patriarchy and matriarchy is is quite stark and every every patriarchy even the most sort of oppressive one will still have beautiful stories about strong women so that's simply the way it is. It's not, just because you have stories about strong women doesn't actually mean that women are empowered in a society. Um, and so the example that I always give, one of our one of our friends in independent Guahan, uh, John Guerrero, he did a master's thesis on Chamorro men that are in, this, in the criminal justice system in Guam for like spousal abuse and domestic violence. And he, um, and the thing is that he interviewed them and he talked to them and it's funny because all of them articulated that they had like really strong maternal figures in their lives, right? And they were nostalgic for like that really strong Chamorro woman. But what they were articulating was a woman who basically was strong because she put up with her husband. Hmm. who, A woman who was strong because she stuck with the family, even if she wasn't treated that great. Like a lot of those stories come because women put up with financial hardship because of their husband's vices. They put up with their infidelity. They sort of endured a system which didn't give them a lot of options. And so on the one hand, you could say that more women are strong, but you shouldn't pretend that there is a system that is empowering them and making them strong but they are strong because they struggle in a system which is fundamentally disempowering them. I mean, we have to remember that it would be interesting to see what Guam would be like if we were never colonized and then we had a different transition into modernity. It might be very different, but because we were colonized and a patriarchy came in, what we ended up with is at the start of the 20th century, you had Chamorro families who refused to let their daughters get jobs. Like when the Navy first started to hire uh, Guam Navy nurses, most of the families of those women refused to let them out outside of the house because they didn't want people to whisper that their daughters were out um, sleeping with sailors and stuff like that. Um, There was even the Guam Congress before discussed laws about whether tomorrow women should be allowed to work and so um and so that's why the we have to be cautious there is something in in our culture and in our past which empowers women but that doesn't give Guam a pass that doesn't mean that whatever we have is MAGAHaga. Haga right yeah. we shouldn't ever mistake those yeah. two things we have this power, there is this empowering strain, but we also have, you know, we also have societies in which, um, think about it, on Guam, we elect women at a very high rate. And in fact, we may, for the first time ever, elect a female majority legislature this year. But, um, but when we look at sort of Lulian Guerrero and her candidacy and stuff, is she being treated any differently than sort of populations in the states treated Hillary Clinton?
0: Right, right.
1: Is our legacy of matrilineality sort of does it extend out to then when a woman comes into power, we don't make all the same stupid jokes.
0: Yeah.
1: Or we don't yeah. sort of give her all the burden and the baggage that like, like a woman in the U.S. or another country would have to deal with. And that's how, by sort of stepping out, that's why whenever sort of the maga-haga idea comes into play, you have to step back for a second and then think, am I just saying whatever I like is like maga-haga, but then I'm ignoring a whole bunch of other stuff? So.
2: Yeah, I definitely, I, I think I see that in um, a lot of the, the attacks on Lou. Um, obviously, there, there are a lot of uh, male uh, leaders who may feel threatened by her wealth and the power that she has right and they've gone to great extents to uh, really um call her out on this but you know what about uh, all the other rich men that ran for office and maintain office you know mm-hmm. yeah that's it <laughs> <laughs> yeah Hey. So, um, how much time do you have left?
1: Uh, about ten more, ten more minutes.
2: Okay. Great. We have, we have another question that Can I want to get like to. One more question. Uh, okay. Mike. Like one more
1: question.
2: Okay. Awesome. Okay. Ready? No feedback. Nanga. Nanga.
3: So, a question from Michael Garcia. In regards to all part of the Chamorro diaspora in the States, what do you suggest are some ways we can help support the movement of decolonization and self-determination?
1: So I heard every other word, but I'm assuming that it is about how the people in the diaspora can get connected to the movement for decolonization in Guam
2: spot on yeah how do we how do we organize how do we activate chamorros and diaspora
1: also so a lot of people will answer that question by saying that um who is we should organize the diaspora their congressional representatives and their senators to blah but that's bullshit the amount of chamorros that are in the United States is nowhere near enough to actually affect anything, really. I mean, you could basically affect, you could affect, tomorrow's in San Diego could possibly affect the election of like one congressperson and maybe affect their aldermens or their municipal councils. But the amount of tomorrow's that are out there is quite small. And so I wouldn't, I don't feel that sort of, uh, some people will say we should organize in that way. It, it, it wouldn't i don't think that that's sort of a successful way it's it's trying to use the politics of electoral like it's trying to use electoral politics in a way that is simply stupid it's just trying to fit our issue into an american mold and so what we really should be doing instead actually is is forming stronger ties between the diaspora and the islands so developing stronger ways in which sort of um, stronger connections. And so, um, because that will be sort of our base of power because the relationship between the diaspora and the homeland can be really strong and and it can lead to professionalization, intellectualization, economic support. It can lead to social movements and mobilization, but it depends on that connection and how strong it is. And that is determined by how much possibilities there are Um, and so, uh, one of the things that I've always sort of felt was a missed opportunity is that there are so many Guam clubs in the United States and almost none of them actually do anything to connect to Guam. Right. What they do instead is they have sort of like these, they're almost like seances like that they sort of they gather around and then they have this like ghostly liberation day barbecue celebration but it's so detached and disembodied from the islands and and all of the issues involved it is totally like the conjuring guam movie these guam clubs and the stuff that they do and it's so weird because why don't they do anything to actually learn more about what is going on in guam why don't they do anything to actually affect it's only on rare occasions, like after sort of major typhoons in the past, where Guam clubs would fundraise and then try to send money home. But most of the time the Guam clubs exist in their sort of own little universes. Sort of, I don't know, surrounded and blocked off by their white picket fences. <laughs> <coughs> but so increasing those chances for connections and so if guam clubs could if you started with one or two one of the larger ones change their agendas to create more facilitation and the thing is it doesn't have to be political it can also be cultural because you can start with the cultural and then you can get to the political from there but um one thing that i would definitely encourage for michael and others and i and while i was out there last month i suggested it to everybody who would listen to me was organized is to organize a Chamorro conference aimed at sort of young Chamorros, those, because we did that about 10 years ago. And the goal really is to take Chamorros that are liberal and that are in the States and make them critical in a Chamorro context. Because a lot of them, a lot of Chamorros out in the States may already be progressive, but they they want, to connect their politics to their their homeland. And they need spaces to do it. And so that's what we did about 10 years ago is we had a conference in which every sort of tomorrow that we could get in touch with out there who was going to school in the States or in the diaspora, tried to bring them together, talk about what's going on in Guam, get informed about the issues. And then the, and then the intent hopefully is that they, that sort of some something will grow from that and from which we did in the past, the most important thing that grew from it is that a lot of Chamorros then moved back home. So a lot of people that participated in that then felt, and it wasn't only because of but it helped sort of shape their their understanding of their life goals, about their place in the world, where they felt like, I need to go home.
0: Mm.
1: I need to go home, I need to connect. And so I definitely encourage whoever wants to do it, And it's easiest in California because there's by far the most Chamorros in California. You have it in Minnesota, you're going to be disappointed. But uh, have it in California and you'll get, you have it in California and I guarantee you that a random Chamorro will drive by and see all the Guam stickers and the Chamorro strength stickers on the cars and a random Chamorro will just come on in. Because that's, that's the, yeah, Guam stickers are... Are very common in California. Yeah. But so but so I, I encourage that. Um, create. So one of the things that can definitely be done by tomorrow's out in the states is create virtual spaces. You know, it's it's harder to create physical spaces, but you can create the virtual spaces, such as Fanatsu, um, where sort of information can be shared and that type of discussion. Can take place. The most, because the most important thing to remember is that like anything is possible as long as people are interested and can share skills. And so for, and so for example, like um, if you were to start, like if you were to start even just a Facebook group or something with a bunch of Chamorros in an area that are interested in this, all it would take is for you to commit to undertaking something. And if you had the skills, then you could easily do it. Like, let's say you wanted to have like a Guam night. And at that Guam night, you wouldn't just sort of uh, sing Johnny Sablon songs. Maybe you might analyze Johnny Sablon songs. Maybe you might talk about sort of the military buildups that are happening in the islands. Maybe you might get into some of those issues. What the diaspora really, really needs is a deepening of the possibility for sort of Chamorro existence. That right now the, and right now sort of the collective sort of aura of the diaspora is quite shallow. Like when I went to, last year when I went to like Guam club events, you know, I would find Chamorros who have no idea what's going on in Guam, have no sense of time at all, like, um, what's it called? I, when In D.C., I, this one Chamorro asked me if Carl Gutierrez was still governor. <laughs> I was just like, wow. I, I mean, he certainly wishes he was, but yeah. <laughs> but damn, like that's two Republican administrations ago. Wow. <laughs> you know, I had people, I had called, <clears throat> there was somebody who, there was one Chamorro who thought that Ricky Berdahlia was still alive. Oh, shit. Yeah. I was like, damn. <laughs> I was like, Damn! If, if, if you weren't so offensive, I would find you cute, in sort of a blocked-off, sort of like man, frozen caveman sort of way. But, um, but so, deepen that experience, deepen that connection. So, so one thing, my final thought on sort of the diaspora. I could talk forever about this, but I, I have to go back to the conference. Is that um, the diaspora is still in so many ways trapped in, the, in sort of the logic of American assimiliza- assimil- assimilation. So in Guam, we've had the Renaissance, right? And we've had the Renaissance, so now, tomorrow, common sense is moving in a different direction. In the States, the Renaissance has hit particular places, but it hasn't hit the diaspora as a whole because the diaspora doesn't have any organic, organic sort of rhythm to it, right? And so you wanna what you wanna do is, is deepen that experience so that your because your average tomorrow out there who's coming of age now would like to know more, but the but the but what they have is so shallow and so small. So you deepen that experience, you create the possibility for them to gain a deeper connection, and ideally you do it in a way so that it is it is a more critical, more progressive way of connecting. And so that is my, that is my spiel.
2: Awesome. Thanks. Jesus, mercy.
3: Jesus,
1: mercy. It's okay. It's okay. Sorry. If I'm making everything skip and, and, and stuff, or if everything's like buffering because I'm, I'm calling in.
3: <laughs>
2: no worries. Thank, thanks for joining us. Adjust. Adjust. Have fun. Sweet. That was awesome. That was our first time doing um, uh, a broadcast yeah. with the guests. Um, yeah. It's not perfect, I'll admit that, <laughs> but it is is—it is pretty cool, yeah. Um, but I, I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit, because I know that um, you recently just came back uh, from Washington, right? Yeah. You spent yeah. some time out there, and um, folks who've been uh, listening to the show for a while know that um, I spent uh, quite a few years uh, in California, and I wanted to know whether what Miguel was saying uh, sort of resonated with you and your experience with diaspora.
0: Um,
3: Yeah, for sure. Because so we had a Guam club uh, at Seattle University. And the thing that really upset me about that club was it felt more like a Hawaiian Uh, uh, luau night type of thing. There wasn't really any actual Jamal culture. the people in it didn't exactly have a, a background on the history or um, really what was going on um, with the military buildup and uh, Chamorro rights as well yeah. um, and the, but also the thing is that the people in that club weren't exactly living out there mm-hmm. there are people coming from here so it was like I'm they sure. were promoting a certain, uh, uh, a certain aesthetic, yeah, a certain, uh, fuck man almost like it was that, yeah. it was like something that made them look unique i see yeah. what you're saying yeah
2: anyway. yeah yeah it, what i was thinking was like i don't know if this is just my um you know like memoraria as jesse pointed out but uh my my um me thinking back to like my childhood mm-hmm. but there was something about like diaspora and like these visions of home that sort of feel like safe and comforting mm. you know like yeah. um you I, I sort of knew that it was something shallow mm. it was really superficial yeah. you know but like just being able to gather in those spaces and you know those things like Johnny yeah, city yeah, and stuff and like yeah. seeing other people who look like you like I don't know I, w- I want to describe it right now as like a sort of like a warm blanket like yeah, something, yeah. something comforting like oh For god sure. and, like <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like in a desert, you know, like a, uh, a, a drop of water, yeah. you know, I'm sure is a lot of comfort yeah, as well. Yeah, so, for sure. Um, but yeah, man. So very interesting. Yeah. Uh, what, what were some of the other? We have two more questions, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. From uh, our patrons. Um,
3: so the other one uh, from Michael Garcia again is uh, um, as an educator in the K to 12 system out here in Cali, currently we are teaching California history uh, and about indigenous groups throughout the land and the colonization of it um, is the local social studies in the school system do the indigenous populations justice currently yeah um, so uh, mm-hmm. I mean for me uh, I went through the private school system so of course it was all like Catholic based uh, mm-hmm. education History was really, um, yeah, just American history, you know. I never really learned um, the local history until I started going to school at UOG. Yeah. Um, and then even during high school, we had a Guam history class, but it was very uh, shallow. It was all like surface level education, nothing like mm-hmm. counter canonical, um, nothing that really uh, challenged your thinking about like the how they always say, Guam as the most patriotic people, like yeah, you, yeah. Know, you find out that that's not exactly the case. You know? Yeah.
2: Or the reason why that might appear that way, yeah,
3: right? Yeah. Dude, yeah. So
2: yeah, I I like you, um uh I like you. Guy, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're where's Hannah and Albert when you need them. Thing, but um so like like you, I I went through the uh, Catholic Education yeah, yeah. system, right? Uh, so from like kindergarten through eighth grade, mm-hmm. I spent those years in, in Catholic schools. Yeah. Um, I didn't. I don't remember learning about uh, Guam history at all mm-hmm. in that time. I remember at Bishop um, back then we did have like Chamorro class. See, I didn't you know. have that. Yeah, man. yeah. So we we did have Chamorro class, um, but it was very it was basic, we learned the alphabet, mm-hmm. uh, we learned about um, weaving, we learned about uh, certain dances, and uh, the Fenogi Chamoru, mm-hmm. um, and that was the extent of, of you know what we learned, yeah. right? And um, I didn't, then I left uh, to the States, um, and I came back, and really my first contact with uh, Chamorro history, counter-canonical stuff, was yeah. like you said, at UOG, mm-hmm. and um, but I can speak uh, from the point of view of uh, a, a former uh, GDOE teacher. Um, it was only three months, yeah. you know. <laughs> I don't want to sell an all the right? But so I, for three months, I, I tried my hand at teaching at, yeah. uh, in Rahan Middle School, mm-hmm. and then also uh, speaking as a, a journalist who covers education issues, mm-hmm. I can say that um, unfortunately, tomorrow uh, history isn't something. Um, that is given as much respect yeah. the, the, same, the level of respect that it definitely deserves still yeah. um, there is a movement sorry folks we only have like 10% battery life left dispensa uh, but um, there, there, there is leeway for teachers to introduce uh, Chamorro history mm-hmm. into like uh, social studies courses um, sure. any, especially like literature Think of all, like, the, the Pacific Islander um, authors oh, and, uh, yeah. and scholars um, that we've encountered. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there is leeway. There, there's room to introduce Pacific Islander uh, texts in the school system. And, um, yeah.
3: A lot of things going on today. <laughs> yeah. There's only two of us here, so we're, yeah. we're manning everything right yeah, now. Yeah,
2: skeleton crew. It's all good. <laughs>
3: Um, um, but
2: yeah, so it's important, and what's comforting is that there are people in the school system who know that it's important. Uh, yeah. People like uh, the uh, deputy superintendent, um, Joe Sanchez. Um, he acknowledges the fact that we we need more uh, uh, Micronesia centric, yeah. um, you know, learning, yeah, and. Sure. Um, He's actually very open to teachers uh, um, introducing, if not uh, having, uh, Chamorro history take precedence over, you know, the, the national uh, curriculum for like social studies and stuff like that. As long as you can contextualize things like, um, I'll I'll just throw out like the Revolutionary War for something, for instance, you know, like students going through an American um, uh, uh, school. System right, are going to learn about the Revolutionary War and other uh, watershed moments in U.S. history. Um, but the question for educators is how can you contextualize those things and be able to decolonize that, decolonize those lessons, introduce uh tumoral history, tomorrow concepts, um, and make it relevant to your students who need it the most. Yeah. You know they need to see themselves in what they're reading, and uh, especially in a positive light, in an empowering light. Yeah. You know. So, but yes, that is, uh, to answer Mike Garcia's question, um, like, currently, uh, it is not the norm to teach a counter-canonical yeah. Chamorro history in GBOB. For sure.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And then even on top of histories, uh, I always hear uh, Chamorro teachers, uh, language teachers, just how they're still not getting enough uh, time in class to yeah. really teach the language. And then the students uh, automatically go back to English once they... Leave the classroom, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done, um, and yeah, I think it's good that we have, you know, people our age like wanting to bring that yeah. into the future for our kids. But uh, the I think we really need to start now. Absolutely, know uh,
2: uh, Shoot. So um, we'll we'll breeze through the last question. Um,
3: running low yeah. on a battery. running low on battery.
2: <laughs> But, um, again, uh, these are questions from our patrons, and you can become a patron on patreon.com uh, slash fanatsu. We have three tiers. Um, the two, at the two highest tiers, you get an invitation to our exclusive WhatsApp group, which we finally rolled out today. <laughs> and you also um, have the ability to um, ask questions ahead of Q&A shows. I'm sorry, F&O shows, Weiss and Zenopi. Um, and uh, maybe now that we've tried out um, having guest uh, broadcasters, maybe we can include some of you uh, patrons on the broadcast too. Share yeah. get we'll get to know you. Yeah, and you for sure. Yeah,
3: get their insight. Yeah, that's awesome, nice. nice. Uh, so the last question, um, again from Carolyn or Caroline. Sorry. <laughs> uh, what are some of the ways we can talk to our families about decolonization, specifically our Manomku or parents? have spent a lifetime serving the U.S. military and who feel as if being part of the U.S. has provided more benefits to Chamorros than Pacific Islanders who don't have the same status. Or suggestions for those of us stateside-born Chamorros who are for decolonization and independence, but our families back home tell us that we don't know what we're talking about because we don't live on the island.
2: Hmm. Man, I don't know if there's... I don't know if either of us have the the right answer to that (laughs) we can definitely speak Um, from experience um you want to kick this one off or
3: um yeah because so i just moved back to guam i lived here all my life but i went to seattle uh, for four years and i just moved back again last year and before i left for school i was definitely different in terms of my mindset Mm -hmm. you know Uh, when i first went out there i was like oh yeah i'm gonna. Make a big name for myself uh, <laughs> get uh all of these uh honors and whatever get um get recognized for doing stuff because 'cause I'm mm. from Guam and stuff like that, but then I started to realize you know that didn't really mean anything out there that you're uh, so it's like yeah, like I didn't have an identity mm. and yeah, um yeah. so coming back, well actually before I came back, I started to read more. About our history, and that's what really got me to uh, um, think about like counter canonically, and so coming back, I wanted to get involved with independent Guan. Um, I followed particular Texan and the whole uh, military build-up issue, and. My family still doesn't really know what I've been doing every Sunday with these <laughs> podcasts. I told them I'm going to record a podcast, but they don't know it's for independent Guam. Yeah. So I'm easing my way into that. And uh, definitely for my siblings, I just try to educate them on like certain mindsets that mm. are common with Guamanians now. Um, not just tomorrow's, but all of Guam. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's like how I said with how we're the most patriotic people, but you know that's yeah. not exactly the reason why we joined the military. Yeah. Um, how we're mo the most welcoming people, but you know that's just because of how tourism has affected us so heavily too. <laughs> um, yeah, man. Yeah, so it's like I'm still working on how I'm uh, really gonna how let them began? let them know what I've been up to. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm going to school for tomorrow's studies and political science. So that kind of yeah. gives, <laughs> gives a hint at what I'm aiming for. Wait, uh, <laughs> it's like, why is he wearing spondylist now? <laughs> oh,
2: man. Well, good luck to you.
3: Yeah. You. You.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You'll need it. Trust me. Um, I think a lot of us, well, it, it's a hard conversation to have um, depending on the political climate. Yeah. You know, uh, I... I first came into contact with like independent, or not an independent Guahan even, oh, we are Guahan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came into contact uh, with them back in like 2009. I was a student at GCC oh, okay. and like just learning about, you know, back then the, the build up yeah. in regards to like the, the taking or the taking of pocket for a firing range, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that was the issue back then. And so, um, you know, every night we all, all like fifteen of uh, my mom's family members, you know, we, we gather at my grandma's house uh, for dinner, and uh, <laughs> maybe it wasn't a strategic of me on my part, oh. you know, but like I brought it up, I was like, hey, I was like, what do you guys think about um, uh, the U.S. wanting to increase the military presence on Guam? What do you think about uh, you know pollution, um, and what do you think about uh, the the possible effects of you know this firing range that they yeah. want to put on pocket? And, you know, like from left and right, just all sorts of like right wing propaganda mm. bullshit. And like, yeah, yeah. like it was like I was thrown into a Fox News, segment, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, don't you know, boy, like without the military, you know, the Chinese are just going to take. Over yeah, Obama. yeah, and like, yeah, you know, like that did a lot. Uh, I think I'm emotionally scarred from that, <laughs> yeah. you know, but I think that happens to a lot of us, um, yeah. people who choose to engage with uh, general politics, yeah. you know. It's sort of, I hate to say, it's like a rite of passage. Like, hopefully, I'm I'm hopeful that there are people out there who uh, grow up in in families who are supportive of these yeah, ideas, yeah. Uh, you know. But uh, unfortunately, for for a lot of us, it's uh, it's a hard reckoning, yeah. you know, and it really tests your your commitment yeah. to uh, to decolonization, these ideas, you know. But I think especially like Carolyn if you're talking about like a a diaspora context Mm -hmm. i think what makes it even more difficult is the fact that um, a lot of people in diaspora are there because of involvement with the u.s military you know like uh my 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 parents um were both uh uh, contractors um for for the the navy at the time and then they were part of that downsizing and um they were able to get jobs at a vandenberg air force base um in california Mm -hmm and the people it's no coincidence you know all of the other Chamorros and the the uh guam families who were out there were all uh employed by um the air force you know and i don't know i if if i knew if i knew back then like what i knew now like how would i bring it up at a dinner table or at at a at a party you know back then um what i would do now um was talk about... I would ask them why they joined the military in the first place. Um, you know, they may say things like, oh, you know, I wanted to serve my country and, you know, but like, why? Like, was there an economic incentive to you joining? Mm-hmm. Uh, what were the, uh, the prospects uh, for you outside of joining the military? Mm-hmm. Um, and why do you think that is? Why do you, why do you Why did you feel compelled to join the military in the first place? Yeah um yeah I will started it off that way um I don't know there's a lot of ways to look at this you know um if you want to talk about like the environment even you know ask them ask them how they feel about mm-hmm. like uh about the US military being the the biggest
3: polluter mm-hmm. in the world or maybe um use some of the historical uh radical history or radical readings mm-hmm. bring that to the dinner table mm. uh yeah any wow. counter canonical uh, readings maybe you can just just have a little t- uh, discussion about the yeah the history there maybe that'll be a way to start um not exactly uh too aggressive i guess yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know like i I would say like at an
2: individual level everyone has had every every uh family member has something that will that could turn them into the next uh, Angit Santos. Oh uh,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: My uncle, um, my uncle is. Uh, he works for a federal entity, right? And he's uh, he's a dude who um, he sounds like he watches a lot of Fox News. Oh, yeah. And it's really hard to have a conversation with him, but what gets him riled up, uh, what grinds his gears, you know, is um, uh, Latexin, Latexin Pocket. Anything that has to do with the taking of of more land, anything that has to do with a possible um, uh, uh, pollution, and his reasoning is because you know like he he's a fisherman, uh, that's part of his identity. Um, Whenever he harkens back to uh, his uh, his childhood years, he talks about going into the jungle, going hunting with his family. That's his shit. That's what he knows. That's what he does. That's what he loves. Like. So even thinking beyond his identity as this person, who um, you know, is threatened by uh, you know like uh, fictional terrorists on Fox <laughs> News every day, and uh, yeah. you know this person who works for the federal government. Even thinking beyond his identity as uh, as um, a person situated within the federal government, the federal system, like there's something beyond that. Yeah,
3: that's um, a very interesting contrast. Just like you know which. Which identity are you going to prioritize? Yeah. Are you going to be a tomorrow or are you going to, you know, be this federal, uh, employee or whatever? Mm -hmm. So that's very interesting there. Yeah, man. Um, so
2: yeah, that's all I got. I'm sure, I'm sure we'll think of more. And one of the benefits of being a patron, um, is that we now have you guys, uh, on a WhatsApp group, uh, and I'll commit to you that, um, if I think of anything else, if I can share any other examples. Um, I'll be chatting with you guys in on WhatsApp. And uh, Larry, anything else?
3: Sizzou uh, Asmasi for uh, tuning in. Huh? Yeah. Uh, me yeah. and Manny tried our best today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, I don't know. And again, if you guys want to be a patron, uh, you can go to www.patreon.com slash You can sign up for one of three tiers. Um, at the two highest tiers, you get Radical History or Radical uh, Readings mm-hmm. or both. Fuck <laughs> No
0: <laughs> uh,
2: Shit. Let's get it, man.
3: Yeah. Uh so anyway, <clears throat> at the uh the highest tier uh the uh Tulu tier, you get the SoundCloud episode on with uh radical history and radical readings. And then the uh the second tier, Hoogla, you get the SoundCloud again with the uh radical
2: histories yeah yeah and you know what's really cool is like you know if you guys want to know where your money is going to <laughs> we just this past week um, we were able to afford a subscription to um adobe audition it's ah yeah. an audio editing uh software and um very convenient of, <laughs> very convenient and especially because like one of the issues we've had uh historically with like uh media right um, with independent Gohan is like, um, and, you know the podcast. Like, it's usually it's it's been mostly me working on the podcast, but um, it's not. It's I'm not the only person involved with this. There's a whole lot of people behind this thing, and uh, now that we have a subscription, um, to Adobe Audition, uh, we can really utilize um our manpower. Yeah. You know, it's not just me anymore. It's not just Larry. <laughs> like uh, now, um, Hannah and Albert. You know, they can you know they, they've shown interest in, in editing podcasts yeah. as well and this will allow us all to do that and we can actually share the files uh, with each other uh, through the cloud it's Definitely um, a
3: more of a collaborative uh, effort
2: yeah and because we can do that uh, we can ensure like consistency we can put out uh, more episodes even you know mm-hmm. we can do all of these things uh, and that's uh, thanks to you guys yes. so we appreciate you um, I don't know what else to say man <laughs> She's just mossy. She's just that Turn it. that aircon <laughs> back on. <Yeah. laughs> adjust.
0: adjust.